It's really good to be with you guys again um, on this Lord's Day. Last Sunday, we began a new teaching series in the book of Job called Sovereign Suffering, and I gave you an introduction to the book. We talked about where the book of Job is located in Scripture, uh, right before Psalms, right in the middle of the Bible, basically. We talked about what the book of Job is. Uh, we talked about who may have written it or wrote it. Uh, we discussed Job, the person, Job, the character, Job, the man, uh, to a degree. Uh, we talked about the time in which he may have lived, which, again, I think is the patriarchal age. Uh, we talked about the book itself quite a bit. We talked about its literary structure. Uh, we talked about its main characters. And uh, lastly, we went over the main themes in the book of Job. Do you remember what they were, the three S's? Sovereignty, suffering, and submission, right? The three S's. Sounds like a snake pit when you guys do it. You're like, this morning, we're going to begin our exposition and journey in and through the book. We're actually going to teach the book today, some of the book. We didn't do that last week. We just had an introduction. But this week, we're going to actually exposit some text. We're going to be focused on verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, and uh, which really promotes and puts forth uh, Job's godly character and wealth. That's kind of the... Uh, the beginning of the book, that's what it presents. And that is the actual title of this message. Again, Job's godly character and wealth. Please take your Bibles and turn over to Job, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to give you five Ps today, five Ps, because I think it's just going to be easier to understand the text and what's going on if we frame it in kind of a topical manner, even though we're going to do an exposition. Um, so five Ps you'll be getting today. I'm going to pray before we actually look at the first one. Father, we humble ourselves and come to you at this time, and we ask that you teach us and train us through your word. Uh, Father, for those of us who are Christians, who are believers, we pray that you do train us, that you sanctify us, and chip away a little bit more of the old man and the old self and um, the character flaws and defects and things that we carry with us. We pray that you work on those things shape us to be a little bit more like Jesus today. That would be wonderful for your namesake and for your glory. And for those who, uh, if there's anyone here that does not, is not yet a Christian, does not yet know you, has not been regenerated, doesn't have faith, uh, we pray that you would um, work in their heart today, that you would reveal yourself to them, that you would help them um, hear and comprehend and understand and believe the gospel, all for your namesake, all for your glory. So train us today and teach us today a little bit more about Job, um, but really not so much as about Job, but um, about the themes that are in this book and help us to see them and to understand them and uh, just to live and walk in your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. First P we're going to look at is Job's place. And, and some of these things, will be, I mean, there'll be a little bit of repetition today from last week because I did mention some of them, but Today will be more exhaustive, but the first thing we want to look at is Job's place, you know, where he was from, where he lived. And we see this in the very first verse or half of verse 1 and 1a, and the text just opens right up and introduces us to this main character. It says, there was a man in the land of Uz 
It's us, not ooze. Ooze would be O-O-Z. <laughs> you know that. It's us, and it says his name is Job. His name is Job, which really looks like Job, um, and it's, it's just pronounced Job. Now, let's just break down the verse here a little bit. A man, right? We see that phrase there, a man. This is, now, now listen, you know how the Word of God is, is written because God is a brilliant author, and he, he includes these little details because He wants us to see certain things here. And He does this right off the bat with the phrase, a man, a man. What does it do? It denotes humanity or human frailty. It reminds us that Job was an ordinary man, an ordinary person. He was not a superhero. He was not a superhuman. He was not an angel. He didn't have miraculous superpowers of any kind. He was a standard issue M-A-N. He was a man. And, and it, it just I, I love how God reminds us of his humanity here. And what does that tell us? It tells us that he's weak. It tells us that he's feeble. It tells us whatever it is that relates to humanity, it's there. Um, as a man, he's also a, a sinner. He's a fallen sinner. So Job is... A man, and that's not to say that he's not a godly man or any of that. We'll get to that. But he is just a man. And I don't know, if you read through the book of Job, you might be led to think that he's kind of a superman because through everything that he goes through, he never does denounce God. He never curses God. He never does any of that. And, and is that an extraordinary thing? Well, it certainly can be because when the bottom falls out, sometimes God's the first one we blame and shake our fist at him and and he just never does that. He does a lot of things, but he never does that. But he is a man, an ordinary man. And next phrase, the land of Uz. This is where he lived. Um, Uz is a, or was a large territory east of the Jordan River, southeast of the Dead Sea, near modern-day Jordan, or, or and or I should say, northern Saudi Arabia. So that's where this land was. Uz is also mentioned in Jeremiah chapter 25, verse 20. It's mentioned in uh, Lamentations chapter 4, verse 21. I think I mentioned that last week. Uh, the most recognized people group from the land of Uz were the Edomites. The Edomites. You know, in the Bible, you have all these ites, right? The uh, Amalekites, the Ammonites, the Canaanites. The Edomites, the termites, you have all these mites, and, and these people were the Edomites. That was the predominant group within that region. And the Edomites were descendants of Esau. How many of you know that name? Esau, right? He's the son of Isaac. He's the grandson of, of Abraham, who's one of the greatest biblical figures, the, kind of the father of the Jewish people. Uh, Genesis 25, verses 24 and 25. And uh, sadly, the Edomites were enemies of God's people. They were. And you could kind of see how that, how that would come about because Esau was really an enemy of God in many ways. Um, he was not a good godly man uh, like his brother. Uh, so the Edomites were enemies of God's people. They did not get along with God's people. They created quite a bit of trouble for God's people later on. Um, Psalm 83 verses 1 through 6a, it kind of talks about how they're enemies. And a little later, uh, there was many conflicts between the Israelites and the Edomites. Um, king Saul actually had some run-ins with them and, and beat them down pretty good. He was Israel's first king. 
And then after him, King David really put a shellacken on the Edomites. He beat them so bad he actually took over their land and annexed it. Uh, you can read about that in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 14. Now when uh, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian, the great Babylonian king, when he besieged Jerusalem and sacked the first temple, right? The first temple had been built by Solomon and it got uh, basically destroyed uh, by, by Nebuchadnezzar. At, during that time in 586 when, Israel, uh, when Jerusalem was besieged and the temple was under attack and it was being destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, guess who showed up to help? The Edomites. And what did they do when they showed up? We've seen what they've been doing, uh, examples of it in Portland. They looted. They looted the temple. They stole all the gold and all the fixtures and everything out of it. They came right in and, and stripped that place clean. They took the meat off the bones, so to speak. Uh, Psalm 137, verse 7 points to that. So um, the Edomites were just, they were, just didn't get along with the, with the Israelites. Uh, the Jewish historian Josephus um, he tells us that the Edomites were actually forcibly converted to Judaism by a notable Maccabean named John Hyrcanus. How many of you have heard of John Hyrcanus? This guy was a big Maccabean king. He was a, an amazing conqueror and, and, and warrior. Well, he basically threatened the Edomites in the territory to either convert uh, to Judaism or to leave the land or to die by the sword. And we read about that in Antiquities Book 13. I'm not sure what chapter. I think 1 and 9. Um, he, he, was a, he was a pretty hardcore military leader and had had it up to here with the Edomites that were remaining in the area. And this is way later. This is during the 400-year time of silence between the Testaments. Um, but as you can learn from history, and here's what's really interesting. I don't mean to say this as a poke at the Jewish people or at the Israelites, but... When you tell a people group that are different from you to either convert or die, what does that remind us of? Is that not what ISIS was doing recently? What I'm telling you is that Judaism has a history of being just as militant as Islam. It does. It has been very militant at times and basically said, hey, either convert or die. And that's precisely what Hyrcanus did. Um, and you know what? They were creating, the Edomites were still creating trouble for him, so I kind of can't blame him. But in any case, there's a militancy there. And who are some famous Edomites? Well, maybe you've heard of Herod the Great. Herod the Great was an Edomite. He was not an Israelite. Isn't that amazing how a, uh, the, Roman, the Roman Empire appointed a king to oversee a vast, uh, vast swath of Israel, and they appointed a non-Jewish king? <laughs> That's how much the Romans liked the Jews. Okay, we're going to give you an Edomite king. And he was not a good king, although he did build a lot of notable structures, including the second temple. And the second temple was completed when? Four years after Jesus was born. So Herod the Great was around during the time of uh, Jesus, or just around then. In any case, he is a, he is a notable Edomite so Job's place was what? The land of Uz. We would say that's the territory of the Edomites who were what? Descendants of Esau. And I'm reminded of the scripture that says I, uh, that I hated Esau but uh, loved Jacob. There's a scripture that talks about that. And what is God saying there in that text? It's the idea that Esau is, is not a God-seeking, God-honoring person, never was. 
and pursued his own things and worshipped his own idols and all that. That's the history. And so God rejects that and accepts the other side. Uh, but it gives you an idea of who Esau is. It gives you an idea of, of what we're dealing with in this land. Now, were there Edomites there when Job was there? I, I don't know. I think Job might have been there before that or right about the time that that was starting to play out. And again, there's a phrase here that says, whose name was Job. As I last, uh, said last Sunday, Job is one of the main characters of this book. Um, in, in Hebrew, we covered this too. In Hebrew, his name means the persecuted one. In Arabic, it means the repentant one. I think both uh, translations or interpretations there or words uh, are very befitting for Job because he was both uh, persecuted by whom? By Satan. He was persecuted big time by Satan. And he also, later in the end of the book, repented of his self-righteousness, right? Chapter 42, verses 5 and 6. So he is, he is both the persecuted one and the repentant one. So the Arabic and the Hebrew kind of capture who he was by name. Now, outside the book of Job, the name Job occurs only in Ezekiel chapter 14, verse 14 and verse 20. It's the only other place that we see it. And it's placed right next to two other biblical heroes, Noah and Daniel. So when you think biblically of Job, he is at that level. He is the, at the patriarchal level. In fact, he's considered a patriarch in many ways. He is, he is considered by God, by the Word of God, to be such a key uh, figure that he's at the level of Noah, at the level of Daniel, at the level of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. So he was, he's a big-time guy, a big-time guy, and he lived in Uz. You'd think a big-time guy would have had a better name for his community, Uz. That just sounds weird. Now we can move to the second P. Now we're looking at Job's piety, his godliness, his piety, verse 1b. And it just continues to say here in the narrative, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. Turned away from evil. So here we see Job's godly character, uh, an example of, now we, it's, his godly character is identified here, right? He's blameless and upright, but we're actually given an example of his godly character, how it manifested, how it, it showed forth. We see that down in verses 4 and 5, which we'll get to shortly. Let's just analyze more phrases and words here. Um, blameless, the word blameless, to be blameless is to be above reproach, which means that people cannot legitimately blame you for sinning. I said legitimately. They can blame you for sinning. Jesus never committed one sin and he was blamed for sinning, but none of those, that blaming, none of it was legitimate. So, so to be blameless means that you live your life in such a way that people cannot come to you with any real evidence of sin in your life. They can't come to you and say, hey, I, I heard you saying this, this, and this, gossiping about somebody or living your life in a certain way that falls short of, of God's glory. They just can't come to you with any, they can make allegations, but they don't have any actual evidence. To be blameless is not to be perfect, but it is to live in such a way that people can't blame you for something, not legitimately. Uh, that word blameless the English rendering of the Hebrew there, it appears nine times in the book of Job, which makes it a, an important theme. To be blameless is an important subject here in Job. 
And uh, to be blameless is to be associated uh, with things like being honest and being uh, maritally, um, maritally faithful, not going outside of your marriage. Um, it has to do, being blameless has to do with the just and right treatment of servants. It has to do with being um, generous toward the poor, those who don't have. Um, it has to do with, and a big theme here when we're talking blameless in Job is it has to do with the avoidance of idolatry. When someone, uh, a believer, a Christian, gives themselves over to, give themselves over to like a type of idolatry where they begin to worship a false god or something like that, and usually it's ourselves, that person is no longer blameless. They can be blamed for committing idolatry. And, and all the things that I just mentioned that, that blameless is, you're not any of those things. You're marity, maritally faithful in all these things. All these things that I've mentioned, Job literally denied wrongdoing in every one of those areas in chapter 31. The entire chapter 31 deals with him identifying what he has not done and how he is blameless in every one of those areas. Again, blameless does not mean that Job was sinless. Blameless and sinless, not synonymous. There's only been one sinless person to ever live, and that's Jesus Christ. Job was not perfect. He was not sinless, but he was blameless in a sense. He was a fallen sinner like the rest of us. But to be blameless for Job means that he was careful to live a God-honoring life before others especially in front of his wife and children. That would be behind the veil, right? When you're out and about, Christians tend to behave pretty good. But when they get behind the veil, behind a door, sometimes they can act a fool. And sometimes they can act a fool in front of their own families and children. Guilty. Done that. Said things shouldn't say in front of my family. Done that. Job was a blameless guy everywhere he went. He lived a God-honoring life in front of others, and he wasn't performing for others to try to fool them. It's just the way he was. He loved God, and he chose to worship God in all that he did. He didn't do it perfectly, but he did it well, especially in front of his wife and children. Uh, another word here, upright. This means to be straight. In, in Hebrew, it means to be straight or level. Level, uh, the Israelites use the Hebrew word that's behind this English word here, the, the English rendering. They use this word to describe a road that is good for travel. It's not real bumpy. It's pretty straight. It's pretty flat. The idea here is that Job lived the kind of life that was straight and flat. Um, he wasn't all over the place on it. It wasn't bumpy and had potholes and everything like our streets. It was, it was a good, it was a good, good, good. His, his life path was, was straight or level. He lived an, an upright life. How? By guarding his speech. Chapter 31, 29 through 30. By guarding his eyes. Chapter 31, verse 1, right? I made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon young, younger women lustfully. Um, he, he lived this upright life by guarding his walk with God. Chapter 31, verses 5 through 8. He, he, he showed uprightness, did the right thing in all of these Areas. He really did live a tight life. He really set guards on his life. He just did not want to be led into sin and dishonor his God. Uh, I would say that he did not swerve to the left or to the right into evil, which is what Proverbs 4.27 talks about. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 27. Um, as if to elaborate on what blameless and upright meant, the remainder of 
the verse declares in two short sentence, sentences that Job feared God and turned away from evil. Well, that's kind of a summary of what it means to be blameless and upright. De- deliberately written here for that purpose. Uh, that phrase, feared God, is an interesting one. In, in Hebrew, the word fear has a, a, a wider range of meaning than it does in English. Uh, it, it includes fright and scare, because that's what we think of when we think of it in English. But it also encompasses uh, reverence and awe, reverence and awe. And the picture here is, uh, speaking of Job, is, is not of a man cowering before an offended deity, but a devout man who respects God and obeys His laws. That's what's intended here through this little verse. Blameless and upright, he just loved God, feared God, meaning respected God, revered God, and he manifested all of that, his love for God, his reverence for God through obedience to what God told him to do. So that's his blamelessness, his uprightness. That's a summary of it. Um, That's what it means to fear God. Turned away from evil, um, a truly godly life involves not only turning to what is right and pleasing to God, but turning away from what is wrong and evil. I think that we get it into our minds that, you know what, hey, as long as I'm pursuing to do what's right and all that, I'm good, I'm godly, I'm blameless. But it's more than that. It also has to do with making sure that as you turn to what is right, to honor God, that you're turning away from the evil things and temptations that are popping up in your life all day long, every day. 24-7. You can't be blameless. You can't be upright if you're turning to what is right and also turning to what is wrong. That's hypocrisy. And that's the struggle of our lives as Christians, right? We're constantly battling to do what is right that is pleasing to God, but we also give in to temptation and these sorts of things. And Job was amazing in that he literally not only pursued what was right, but that he literally, when evil came, When opportunities for him to be sinful and to be evil and to commit evil and wickedness, he literally would turn away from those things. When he was tempted, he would end that temptation by distracting himself, by leaving that scene, by getting out of that scenario or that environment. He turned away from evil. And some translations say he shunned it, which means he hated it. It's like when you shun something, you despise it so much that you have just turned against it with force. And he literally shuns evil. I hate evil. I hate the fact that, that, it, that it's opposed to God, that it's displeasing to God. And he would shun it. He would turn from it and keep living his life, turning to what is right. Again, we need to be reminded that he was just a man because right now he sounds like a superman, doesn't he? But he was just a man. And I'm telling you right now, and here's the thing. If Job could do this, and you know, Back in the Old Testament, they didn't have the Holy Spirit like we do. Some men were anointed with the Holy Spirit to do particular things, but the Holy Spirit had not come in the way that He did on Pentecost. That was different. We all have the Holy Spirit, which means we have an advantage over somebody like Job. And if Job could do this, then what does that tell us? Being that we have the Holy Spirit an advantage, that tells us that we can do it as well. And sometimes we feel like, I just can't. When's the last time you actually tried? When's the last time we actually prayed to God, God, empower me through the Holy Spirit to live a righteous life and to stop giving myself over to that stupid evil and that stupid sin? 
When's the last time we prayed that? When's the last time we asked for that? If Job could do this, we could do it. He was just a man. Well, we're just men and women, but we have this spirit. How much more can we do this? I'm talking to myself right now because I need to practice this. I think we all do, but I know I need to, firstly. But sometimes we just give ourselves over to it and act like we're just powerless against this stuff that we're dealing with, and we're not. Job could do it. We could do it. Now, the, the term evil here, because it talks about how he turns from evil, it's universal and it's specific. So it has a broader meaning, and then it has a focused meaning. It is universal in that it refers to anything and everything that is sinful and displeasing to God. So Job lived his life in such a way that he would turn from anything and everything. Anything that he could detect, anything that he knew was opposed to God, he would try to turn from that. But that's the universal application here. But it's also specific in that it refers to some of the evil practices and behaviors that are actually listed in the book of Job, especially in chapter 22, verses 6 through 9. Uh, here, here's a few of them. that are, are These are them that are mentioned there in chapter 22. Uh, chapter 22, verse 6. This is an evil, by the way. This is an evil that Job literally shunned, okay? I'm, give, I'm putting handles on it for you now so you can carry it because you're saying to yourself, what is this evil? Here, here's some of it right here, and you're going to freak out because this doesn't sound like evil. Lending money to a friend and demanding interest or collateral. The Bible calls that evil. That is evil. Have you ever done that? Hey, you know what? Yeah, I'll throw you 100 bucks, but you've got to add 5 bucks to it. Ah, maybe we don't do that. But maybe we've thought of taking some kind of collateral or something of that nature. We, we are not to do this. In fact, that, that is an evil the Bible recognizes as evil. It's actually forbidden. If you don't believe me, read Exodus chapter 22, verse 25. I'll tell you what, standard, standard basic issue truth right here. God does not want us loaning people things. We either give it or we don't. That's the way it works in Scripture. And in and, and, and Exodus twenty two twenty five, it has to do with, well, if you're going to loan something to a friend, don't charge them interest and don't take cattle just in case they default. Either give it to them and then get it back when you can or don't. So lending money to a friend and demanding, demanding collateral or uh, demanding interest or anything of that nature, uh, basically what God tells us to do, he says, you're not a bank, so don't act like one, especially with your loved ones and friends. And maybe all of us in this room, that's just not our nature to do that. But I'll tell you what, there's some out there who do this. They want something in return. Now, if we help a friend, we must either give them what they need and not expect anything back, or we're just going to give it to them, or we're going to give it to them and not accept any kind of collateral or charge any sort of interest or anything like that. But I, I'm a firm believer in just if you have the means to help somebody, just give it to them and don't expect it back. Don't say, here are the terms. Over the next 12 months, you're going to pay me $125, and then it's going to culminate with a lunch at El Roselle. Just don't, you know, don't do it. Just give freely or don't give. If you have the means, give. If you don't, don't. So this is an evil practice that was prevalent and popular in Job's day. And in 22, verse 6, we see... Hey, that's an evil that Job stayed away from. Uh, in verse 7 of chapter 22, and, and this, I think, sounds more evil to us, withholding water from a thirsty person, uh, withholding food from a hungry person. 
to withhold the basic essential needs from someone who has those needs is evil. It's wicked. Uh, in other words, not meeting the basic needs of the needy is evil. It is evil. We are instructed over and over in Scripture to be compassionate and to show kindness to the poor. And when the Bible says showing kindness to the poor, it doesn't mean shower them with pleasantries in their time of need. It means meet their need. Feed them. Shoo them. Give them water. And when I say shoo them, I don't mean say shoo, 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 poor. Because that tends to be us at the grocery store when they're out there at the door and we're like, oh, I just want to get groceries. Try bringing out a bag for the guy, you know? We are, we are told over and over, who modeled this? Who modeled this compassion better than anyone in Scripture? Jesus. He fed 5,000 one time, 4,000 another time, not including men and, and children, or not including women and children. Jesus healed people. I mean, he was just compassionate. All the time, he oozed he, compassion, he cared for people. Now, of course, he did all these things, not just for the purpose of meeting those needs, but for the purpose of proving who he is, Messiah. I mean, that's what he did by meeting all those needs. He was showing what the kingdom of God's going to be like. But in any case, he modeled this compassion. And to withhold these things is just a, a devastating evil. In fact, I, I like what Proverbs 19, verse 17 says. It says, Whoever is generous to the poor actually lends to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? And, and it says that God will pay him for his deed. When, when we show compassion and meet the needs of those who have needs, it's as if, it is totally that we are serving the Lord. It's as if we're lending to the Lord. We're doing the Lord's bidding and work. We're doing something for him because he has compassion for people. He cares about people. Uh, it's a phenomenal verse. And in this book, to withhold is an evil, and that is an evil that Job stayed away from. Uh, in chapter 22, verse 9, we see another one, very similar to the one we just identified. Uh, sending widows away empty-handed and crushing the hopes of orphans. All right? Widows and orphans. Didn't we just learn about that in James? Isn't true pleasing, godly religion according to James, chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, isn't, isn't that defined as caring for the least of these out there, widows and orphans? Who are widows and orphans? They are the most, they may not be the most financially destitute, maybe they are, but they are the most without hope people on earth. The husband's died, gone, left the, left the wife with bills and a household to run and these sorts of things. That's a tough thing for widows. But orphans have been abandoned by their families, by their Parents, think about it. The lowest of the low in this culture and in our culture in many ways is widows and orphans. And it's just an evil not to care for them. It's a wickedness not to care for them, biblically speaking. And that was actually in uh, James chapter 2, verse 27. It says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for widows and orphans in their distress. And, and it also adds, and refusing to let the world corrupt us, which I think is very interesting. How does the world corrupt us in this context in James 2? It corrupts us by causing us or helping us be very selfish and turned in on ourselves, and we pursue the worldly pleasures and these sorts of things while abandoning widows and orphans. But this is a, a wickedness in Job chapter 22, just to not care 
and not take care of widows and orphans. We are um, obligated to do this. And they had a, a ministry that did this in the first century. This is why they had to employ, pray for, and appoint uh, deacons in the first century church. In the book of Acts, we read about this because there were widows, there were Jewish widows and there were Gentile widows who the church was trying to care for and the apostles were doing all the work and couldn't keep up with it, so they what? Prayed and appointed some deacons to take over that ministry. The church has a long history of caring for the poor, caring for the thirsty, caring for the hungry, caring for widows and orphans. And it is an evil to neglect them, even today. Job was just hit the nail on the head in all these areas. He, he, he showed the compassion to the poor, and he was wealthy. We're going to talk about that. He showed the compassion. He cared for widows and orphans. He did these things. He was, in, in so many ways, just a, a kind of model Christian. He feared God. He feared God, which means he respected God. He obeyed God's commands. He, he turned away from evil which means that he obeyed in these areas that I just mentioned. He cared for these people who needed to be cared for. He gave freely to those in need. And he did it for friends. He would loan or give and not expect anything in return or certainly not charge any interest or collateral. But he would give to friends and he would give to strangers. That's the kind of guy he was. That's his piety. He's a guy who believed in Jesus Christ and loved Jesus Christ and showed that love through obedience to the commands of Jesus Christ. He was a model Christian in that he didn't just say he was a Christian. He said that, but he lived it and lived it out and proved it, which is what this world needs today like never before. It needs that. So that's his piety. Let's look at the third P. This is his, Job's posterity. Posterity, we see it in verse 2. It says, there were born to him seven sons and three daughters. Man, he had a lot of kids. That's some serious kid action right there, right? Seven sons and three daughters. And here's the deal. Seven and three are special numbers in the Bible. They are. There are seven days in a week, although some of you act like eight because you never stop working. But there are literally how many days in a week? Seven, right? Genesis chapter 1 through chapter 2, verse 3. How many lambs did Abraham offer to Abimelech? Seven. Genesis 21, verse 28. Jacob served seven years for each of Laban's daughters. One of them he got scammed on. He didn't mean to do it, but... Uh, Genesis 29, verses 18 through 30, seven years apiece, what, 14 years he worked for a guy just to marry his daughters. That's a serious commitment, right, just to get a woman. But guys will go to, there's no distance, they won't travel to get to the woman they, they want to be with. 14 years of labor, that's insane. Honey, I would do it for you. <laughs> Later, she's like, no, you wouldn't. I have done it. I have labored. She has labored. Yeah, she has labored. 14 years. Seven and seven. Two, two times we see seven. Joseph dreamed of seven ears of corn and seven cattle. Genesis chapter 41. He was this guy that had all these crazy dreams, and he had a crazy coat that 
had all kinds of different colors on it. He was an interesting guy. Uh, the number seven, actually, according to Scripture, and I'm not a big into numerology. I think there's some people out there that run crazy with this. I'm thinking of a number. You know, it's like, get out of here. That's, that's, like, that's like a magic show. I'm not into that. But the number seven in Scripture actually does represent perfection and completion or completeness. That's what it represents. Perfection and completeness. There's a reason why we call it old lucky number seven, right? No, that's not why we call it that. Number three is also an interesting number according to Scripture. It appears in multiple places. How many sons did Noah have? Three, right? They're all named after sandwich meat, ham and whatever. (laughs) Genesis 6.10. Abraham entertained how many heavenly visitors in Genesis 18.2? Three. Uh, Jochebed hid Moses for three months, Exodus 2.2. Jesus rose from the dead on the third day, third day, 1 Corinthians 15.4. You see the significance there over and over. Uh, The number 40 is not mentioned here in Job, but it's also a popular number in Scripture. Now, when we add 7 and 3, we get what? Ten. Wow, we got math scholars in here. <laughs> we add seven and three, we get ten, which is another special number in the Bible. Ten was the lowest number Abraham bargained for as he pleaded for Sodom to be spared, right? Went from like 50 all the way to, okay, if there's ten righteous people, save it. Genesis 18, verse 32. Um, Eliezer, or Eliezer took ten camels to buy a bride for Isaac. Genesis 24, verse 10, um, Joseph's ten brothers who went to Egypt returned with ten donkeys loaded with food. Genesis 42, verse 3, and 45, verse 23. Now, antiquity and biblical numerology uh, seems to indicate that, and here's the point, it seems to indicate that Job had an ideal family. He had an ideal amount of children, biblically speaking, and historically speaking, he had an ideal family. He had ideal numbers of children of both genders as well. Notice how I said both. There isn't 60. There's two, male, female. And when God restored Job's fortunes and posterity in the last chapter, he was once again given what? Seven sons and three daughters. Chapter 42, verse 13. Now, having this number of children with that particular number of genders, that the, you know, seven sons and, and uh, three daughters, ten total, it, again, in Scripture, signifies the perfect size family with the perfect amount of males and females and all of that. But really what it signifies here in this text, what it tells us is that Job was highly favored and blessed by God. That's the point. To have that many kids and those types of kids and all that, it shows God's favor and blessing on his life. Now, don't immediately say to yourself, well, I only have three kids, so maybe I'm not favored and blessed. Maybe you only have one kid. Trust me, if you have just one kid, if you only have one kid, you're blessed. You understand what I just said? Try having three. Try having four. Try having five. 
to have any children is, is the favor and blessing of God, whether you've adopted that child or had that child naturally. It is a blessing to have kids. It says this in the Bible over and over and over. And Psalm 127 verses 3 and 5 talks about God's favor and blessing to those who have children. Job was, what are we looking at here? He, was, he had this posterity. His posterity looked a certain way. He was favored and blessed by God. That's the point. That's his posterity. Now we can look at number four, his prosperity, not posterity, at an R. His prosperity, verse three, listen to this. He possessed 7,000 sheep. Wow, man, can you imagine the, the bleeding all night long? I'd be like, get out of here. 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and then added in with all his animals was his servants. That's kind of raw. <laughs> a bunch of people. And many servants, it says, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. Wow. Now, like I said last week, back in the patriarchal age, back in these really, really old days, wealth was measured in livestock, not necessarily in gold and silver. Okay? So, so this list of all these animals, all this livestock, shows that he was extremely wealthy in his day. Very, very wealthy. 7,000 sheep. There, there was a, a wealthy landowner named Nabal, Nabal, who spurned David's humble request for supplies for his men. Now, Nabal, Nabal was one of the wealthiest men in his time. And this is way later on. He was an extremely wealthy guy. Guess how many sheep he owned? And he was uber wealthy. 3,000. He had less than half the amount of sheep that Job had. That tells us something, right? Job was like massively wealthy compared to this guy. But Nabal was very, very wealthy. In fact, he had a, it says in the scripture, he had a gorgeous knockout wife named Abigail. And uh, after cursing David and saying, I'm not going to help David, within a few weeks he had a stroke, he died, and guess where Abigail went? She became David's wife. <laughs> 1 Samuel 25. The Bible's actually funny. I mean, that's crazy. I'm not going to help him at all. <gasps> and then his wife is with David. It's like, oh, my goodness. That's what happened, literally. So um, don't mess with David. But point is, he had, a lot of, he had a lot of sheep, but nowhere near as much as Job. He wasn't as wealthy as Job. Um, when Asa ruled over Judah... He brought uh, sweeping religious reforms into his kingdom after hearing a prophecy from Azariah, the son of Obed. He was a prophet then, and this is later as well. And uh, Asa, what he did was he, he tore down all the detestable idols in every city. He went city to city in his land and tore down all the, the statuary and idols, worshiping all these false gods and all this garbage. He just rid, rid Judah of, of uh, idolatry. And during his uh, 15th year on the throne, he and all the people gathered in Jerusalem to offer sacrifices to God. Can you guess how many sheep Asa burned on the altar? 7,000. That's an exorbitant amount of sheep to offer. That is a, a fortune worth of sheep to offer to God. And that happens to be the same number of sheep that... Job owned, right? And you can read about Asa and that whole thing in 2 Chronicles chapter 15. The point is, is that Job owned so many sheep. He owned the same amount that an insanely wealthy king offered on an altar to God. 
again, just further illustrating Job's wealth. I would say that Job owned more sheep than a wealthy landowner, Nabal, and the same amount of sheep offered by a super wealthy, powerful king. And having 7,000 sheep was pretty handy because it provided him with a ton of wool. And what does wool mean? It means luxurious clothing back in these days. It means uh, 7,000 sheep means he had tons of sheep milk, which is what people drank back then. And if you do the math, 7,000 sheep will give you about 112,000 lamb chops. Lots of food. I had to look that up. I had to look at the lamb and figure out where are the cuts of meat. And the lamb chop is like right in the rib area. So I tell you what, I did some serious study on this. <laughs> lots of food here, though. Lots of, lots of food. The, the, all those sheep would have provided him with tons of wool and clothing and milk and, I mean, just uh, incredible. Lots of food. 3,000 camels he had. Camels were typically used by desert-dwelling people, right? When we think of camels, we do think of the desert, and they were mostly taken in by desert people. And why is that? Because of their incredible ability to store water in their hump or humps on their back. Uh, according to Mosaic Law, which again came later after, um, after Job, in Leviticus chapter 11, verse 4, camels were considered unclean. They had split hoof. Uh, the Israelites were not to eat them. But I think that because they were rendered unclean by the Mosaic law, I'm thinking the Jews just refused to own camels because they didn't want to have anything around them that was unclean. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that the Israelites probably did not own or utilize camels. Again, this tells us that Job was around before the law, before any of those sorts of things. Uh, what were camels used for back then? They were used for transportation. People rode them. That's what they were used for. And I can tell you a, a silly story. My brother-in-law, <laughs> my brother-in-law, Rick, he lived in Saudi Arabia for, for a bunch of years. He was a, a, he was a contractor down there training Saudis how to work on American military helicopters, Hueys and these sorts of things. And so he worked, he worked over in Saudi Arabia for years and years and years. And once in a while, he would, you know, he would just send me a random text with a picture. And he would be holding up this little packet of meat, and it said camel on it, ground camel. And I was like, dude, that is absolutely disgusting. Tell me you didn't buy that. He said, it was yesterday, it was delicious. <laughs> you know, they eat camel over there in that region and stuff. And so I, I had to ask. I said, you got to tell me, man, what does it taste like? He goes, it tastes like chicken. <laughs> Why is it that every weirdo meat out there tastes like chicken? rattlesnake, everything out there that's weird, it tastes just like chicken. But in any case, they eat it back there. But what is it primarily, what are camels used for? Transportation. And Job had 3,000 of them. Uh, he had 500 yoke of oxen. A yoke is a, a wooden harness that's used to strap two ox together for the purpose of plowing fields. A yoke then refers to two animals which means that Job had how many? If he had 500 times 2, 1,000, right? He had 1,000 oxen. The fact that Job kept his oxen yoked tells us that he used them for plowing, which means that he had what? Farmland. He owned land. How much farmland did he own? We do not know. It doesn't say in the text. And I would say probably a lot 
because 500 yoke of oxen can plow 500 acres in a single day. One yoke of oxen, two ox together that are bolted together can plow an acre a day. 500 can do 500. Uh, this dude had some serious land. Uh, maybe he owned 500 acres that he worked in the farmland. If that's the case, that's almost a square mile of land. I think he owned more land than this, and I don't think he worked all those oxen together all the time. And in any case, he had, a, a, just a, he had massive property and massive farmland. And, and we see this. This is proven through the next uh, description here of 500 female donkeys. These female donkeys were used for what? For carrying the produce from Job's fields to his granaries, storage facilities, wherever he kept the produce, maybe for even uh, carrying the produce to the farmer's markets and places where you could purchase this stuff. And these female donkeys were also used for milk. Uh, the text doesn't say, but Job must have owned a few male donkeys, the studs, uh, because animal breeding was huge business back then 4,000 years ago. So he had more than 500 donkeys. He just had 500 females. And the females were more valuable in a lot of ways because of the milk and things like that. So according to, and I know these numbers don't apply back then, but just think just for a moment here. We're again trying to capture his, his prosperity. According to today's livestock prices, and let me tell you, this was not easy to generate these numbers. But according to today's livestock prices, Job's massive herd of sheep, camels, oxen, and female donkeys would be worth $17.5 million today. And you say, well, you've got inflation. It's 4,000 years ago. Okay, fine. Even if all of his livestock together were worth hundred grand back then, he was richer than anyone else. And that's probably what it was, a couple hundred grand. He uh, was just absolutely epically wealthy. He, had, he, had, he was so prosperous, it's crazy. He had very many servants, it says as well. Now, we need to understand, these were paid servants. These were employees. These were not slaves. And again, slavery back then was differently than the slavery that we're familiar with that people are chanting about again today. These were paid servants. These were his employees. They ran his business. They worked his fields. They maintained his state. And, estate. and I think that they probably maintained his children's places as well. And they performed a, just a multitude of tasks for him. The term very many, right? You see it there in the, in the text. Very many, it provides a clue as to how large his business and estate were. It took very many servants to keep it all going efficiently. And we can run our households and our small businesses with a handful of people. Job needed an army. His business and estate were so large and his wealth was so vast that he became known by others as the greatest of all the people of the East. Okay? Job is the Bill Gates of the East. Job is ridiculously, ridiculously prosperous and wealthy. His prosperity was epic. And you know what was more epic? His godly character. His godly character was unequaled. You know, Job is an interesting person here because he is both insanely wealthy and insanely godly, and those two things rarely go together, right? It's harder for a well, it's harder what for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a wealthy person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because their wealth blocks them from seeing their need, their spiritual needs. And Job fully recognized his spiritual needs. 
and he was insanely wealthy. He is totally unique, totally unique. Now let's uh, move to the fifth and final P, right? We just looked at the prosperity. Now we can look at Job's pattern as we begin to kind of tie it together here. We see this in verses 4 and 5. It says, His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one of his day, on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. And it says, for jo uh, this is what Job said to himself, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And then it says, thus Job did continually. Job's seven sons would uh, throw feasts at their homes, probably on their birthdays. We're not given how frequently they did this. I don't think it was a weekly thing, uh, but they probably threw these big feasts on their birthdays and they would invite their sisters to come and attend. Now, how many of you would invite your family members to come to your feast? Nobody is throwing their hand up because there is problems in our families, right? That was not the issue here, and that's the point. This family got along, and they hung out together. At these feasts, they would celebrate life and God's goodness uh, through what? Eating well-prepared meals. They would drink wine. This was a, it was a kind of a customary thing to drink wine together, maybe wine from their own vineyards or wine from local vintners. I don't know where the wine came from. They probably had their own, their own uh, business going for that as well. And really the purpose of verse 4 is, is simply just to show the unity and closeness of Job's family. All his children, his posterity, they all got along really well. Enough to come together on occasion and have these parties and have a good time and enjoy each other's company and fellowship and do these things. In other words, his children loved and cared for one another. And that is seen in how they came together regularly. There was no hostility or dissension between them. There was no strife. There was no discord. There was only harmony. The fact that they kept coming together kind of proves that. And it kind of shows that they were godly, not to mention Job's influence over them. But these were, these were, you want to think of these kids as godly kids who love the Lord and who like to spend time together. There was only harmony here. They didn't have a fragmented, broken family, you know, which is so sad. I, I came out of a broken home. Some of you did as well. They didn't have that. Everyone was together and everyone loved each other. And yet... Since beer and wine, and these are things that they drank back then, mostly wine, can lead to brawling and mockery, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, right? Beer is a brawler, wine is a mocker. Since they had alcohol at their feasts, there was the potential for sinful conduct during those feasts, especially if one or more of Job's children had a little too much to drink. Now, the text does not say they had too much to drink. We don't want to think of them like that. But whenever alcohol is there, trust me, I've been done so many weddings, it's not even funny. The dry ones are dry weddings, <laughs> literally. But when you start adding a little bit of booze, some people loosen up and have a good time. Next thing you know, some are dancing on tables, and that's where a line is crossed. You know, it, it, it just, you add alcohol, and there's the potential for sinful behavior because the inhibitions and the self-control and these things kind of drift away. Can anyone here 
resonate with what I'm saying. Has anyone here been stupid on alcohol? I have, thank you. It can happen. It's been a long time since I was. But since beer and wine can lead to these sorts of things, there is the potential for misconduct. And guess what? Job understood this. See, Job understood his kids were godly kids, but he also understood when they got together for their feast, there was the potential for that. All right? There's always the potential for it when alcohol and stuff is involved. And when the feasts ended, because he understood this, when the feasts ended, he would actually send for his children. And when they arrived at his estate, he would consecrate them. Consecration has to do with being set apart for the purpose of a specific use. In this instance, it, it has to do with being set apart for God's use. And so what Job basically did here through this consecration is he would prayerfully, he would call his children to his home and he would prayerfully commit each of them to God so that God would bless them and use them for His glory. It sounds a lot like what Hannah did in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 28. So Job knew his kids had these parties, and these were not wild parties. These were not parties depicted in the 80s movies, right? These were feasts where they would come together and enjoy great meals together and have some drinking and have a good time. But in any case, Job wanted to be careful and make sure that he consecrated his kids and reminded them of who they are and who they're to be, how they're to live. He did this. He did this. In combination with the consecrating prayers uh, Job made, he also made burnt offerings for each of them. This is phenomenal. Job would call his kids up after these feasts and he would say, I want you to come over. I'm going to pray for you and I'm going to offer a a lamb for you. And his kids didn't resist. They would come right over and do that, you know. And sometimes uh, in the midst of one of those feasts, you might end up sitting and not even realize it, again, because you get too loose on, loose on the booze. But he would have them come and he would offer offerings for them. I, I love it. Job did all this for his family. He did this for his children. He, he didn't relegate his his responsibility as a godly parent to raise his children. He didn't call the church and say, could you come over and do this for me? He didn't drop his kids off at some youth ministry and expect them to disciple his children. Job raised his children. Job raised his children. Job would have his children in church. Job sacrificed for his children. Job prayed for his children. Job taught his children the ways of God. He did. He did it. He took responsibility. And it's a darn shame what we see in the church today where parents are just expecting everyone else to do that for them. In fact, parents are just having kids. Parents are letting their, their cell phones and the Internet and these things raise their children today. It's terrifying, and that's why we're at where we're at right now. And he was a committed guy, and he offered these sacrifices and these prayers. Later in the history of Israel, a burnt offering would be the most expensive form of sacrifice in which the whole sacrificial animal is consumed on a fire. It pictures the hot anger of God burning up the animal in the place of the worshiper whose sins would have made them liable to be burned up in the presence of God. Did you know that's what a burnt offering represents? The animal is being consumed on the altar instead of you because your sins have made you liable for that. Now, we can imagine Job doing this for, for his children one at a time, right? This one, this animal I'm offering for you. And then he lights the fire and the animal is consumed. 
and the son or daughter is standing there watching that the Holocaust play out, and he or she is thinking to his or herself, man, that would have been me if there had been no sacrifice. And then the next one, this one is for you, and so on until all the children were covered by sacrifice. What was so serious that it necessitated such an expensive and urgent sacrifice? I mean, why did Job insist on doing this party by party? Because he said to himself, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. That was Job's concern. Even though his children were godly, there was the potential for that there. And he, he was concerned about them. He was anxious for them. I hope they haven't sinned against our God. And he knew how serious it was to curse God in the heart, to wish God dead, as it were. That's a terribly serious offense, an offense that carries the eternal death penalty if it is not atoned for. But Job believes in the atoning power of sacrifice, and so he offers burnt offerings. He did this continually. This was his pattern. His pattern further illustrates his piety. He had a deep love and profound reverence for God, which he proved through obedience to God and through love for others. And he taught his children how to love and worship God and how to make atonements for their sins, didn't he? Again, he didn't give this responsibility to somebody else. He took the bull by the horns, literally, and, and taught his children. Job was the greatest man in the East, and he was the, the most blameless and upright man on earth. He was like the, the tallest tree in a forest, towering over everything and everyone below. It was his spiritual height that attracted the lightning bolt of divine testing. According to the infinite wisdom of Almighty God, Job was the right man for the job. He was about to become the instrument by which God would use to vindicate, to vindicate His holy word and shame the devil. What a privilege. We think that what happened and, and fell upon Job is horrible and terrible. What a privilege to be used by God in such a way to vindicate His word and to shame Satan. That is a privilege for us to be used in that way, even though it hurts for a while. Closing. The sacrifices Job offered to God foreshadowed not only the sacrificial system in the Mosaic Law, which came later, but foreshadowed the final sacrifice, which came much later. Every sacrificial lamb Job offered on the altar pointed to the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, who would come and, and step out of heaven and, and come to earth and be born of a virgin, live a, a perfect, sinless life, die on a cross to atone, pay for our sins, uh, to be buried in a tomb, and to rise from the grave on the third day victorious over sin, Satan, death, and hell for all who trust in His person and finished work for their salvation. That is the gospel. 
you, you see the gospel pictured in the piety and actions of Job as he offered these sacrifices for his kids. How remarkable is that? It, it, it is true that what Jesus said, that all Scripture points to me. We even see it here in the, in the, in the, the prologue of this phenomenal book. I just have to ask you, have you accepted the sacrifice of Jesus? Are you trusting in His person and finished work for your salvation? Do you believe the gospel? I hope so. You know, like Job, we have all, we have all cursed God in our hearts. We all have. We have all taken His name in vain, either in mind or with our tongues. We are all worthy of being burned in hell. We've earned that. And if you, if you don't believe in the gospel, that's where you're headed. If you don't repent and turn away from your unbelief and trust in Jesus Christ alone as your Lord and Savior, believing that He died on that cross for you, that He paid for your sins, that He rose victorious for you. If you don't believe that, there, there is, if you don't believe that, there is nothing else for you. He's it. No, no good deeds, no working hard. None of that's going to help you. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the gospel, after we have heard it, there is no sacrifice for sins remaining, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. And here it is. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. I just read Hebrews 10, 26 through 31 to you. What I'm telling you is, is that if you do not have the gospel, you have nothing. There is nothing else, no one else out there who is going to save you. No one, Christ alone, believe in Him, trust in Him. He's it. He is the perfect sacrifice, the once and for all. It's done. It's complete. It's perfect. It's satisfied God, fully satisfied God. Believe in Jesus. Trust in Him. Amen?